First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Bible, and I hope you do. Would you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3? Nehemiah chapter 3. And you know, as you're turning there, I, I've heard it said that if you want to master something, any particular uh, skill or, or, or ability that you want to, to master, uh, that it takes at least 10,000 hours to be able to do that. 10,000 hours. That's, that's a lot of time. In fact, it, it equates to this, that if you do something two hours a day, every day, and you never miss a day, that you would reach that 10,000 hour mark somewhere uh, a little more than 13 and a half years. But if you want to master something, if you want to be even among the world's best at something, I bet that that number is not far off. In fact, it might even be a little low. I was thinking this week about a documentary I saw about Herschel Walker, uh, the great uh, running back that played for the Georgia Bulldogs and won the Heisman Trophy in 1982. Uh, Growing up, uh, he would do, he said, 5,000 sit-ups and push-ups every day after he got home from school. Now, he would race a locomotive as it came through his town. He would tie 50 pounds of tires to himself and run barefoot in over 100 degree heat. That's just crazy. And yet, these are the sacrifices that people will make to be the best at something. You think about Olympic athletes and all the sacrifices that they go through to have one chance at gold perhaps in their lifetime. And, of course, not just athletes, it's musicians. Think about all the time and energy it takes for musicians to master their craft. Uh, Think about the world's best scientists and mathematicians and physicists, the time and the sacrifice and the countless hours that are required as they seek to make breakthrough discoveries. You know, last week we saw in the book of Nehemiah that Greater things are never easy, and they're not. But what I want us to see this week is this. Greater things always require greater sacrifice. The greater things that God has called our church to will not be possible if we as a people are not willing to make sacrifices to see them happen. And in the same way, the great work that God gave to Nehemiah and the people of Nehemiah's day to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem would never have happened if they weren't willing to make tremendous sacrifices as well. Now, by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah, the cupbearer for the Persian king Artaxerxes, has already come to uh, Jerusalem He's already taken his midnight ride around the city to inspect the walls. He's already fasted and he has prayed. He has presented his plan to the people. And the people responded at the end of chapter 2 and said, Yes, Nehemiah, we're with you. Let us rise up and build together. And then we come to Nehemiah 3. And here we find a listing of all of the people who worked on the wall and the parts of the wall that they worked on. And as we read this, there's going to be a lot of 
names, names of people and names of places that are, that are coming at us. But the Lord has put this chapter in his word for a reason, and I believe he has a word in it for us as a church today. Let's read it together. Nehemiah 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it. Then as far as the tower of Hananel, next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. Also, the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, made repairs. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Beuna, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their lord. Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, uh, the son of Besudea, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon, and Mizpah, repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harheah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And there are portions of the broad wall that are still there and have been excavated and are able to be seen to this day. Verse 9, next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumath, made repairs in front of his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabiah made repairs. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Harshub, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section, as well as the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him was Shalom, the son of Hebohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of beth Hakerem, repaired the refuse gate. He built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And Shalun, the son of kol Hose, leader of a district of Mitzpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of beth Zur made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David to the man-made pool and as far as the house of the mighty. After him, the Levites under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half the district of Keilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren under Bavi, the son of Hinnadad, leader of the other half of the district of Keilah, made repairs. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zebe, carefully repaired the other section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. And after him, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, repaired another section 
from the door of the house of Elisha to the end of the house of Elisha. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. And after him, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Maasiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After them, Ben-Yui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. And Paolau, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower, which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. And after him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, made repairs. Moreover, the Nethanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate towards the east and on the projecting tower. And after them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Emer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, the Hunun, the sixth son of Zelaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. And after him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and of the merchants in front of the Mifkod gate, or the inspection gate, and as far as the upper room at the corner. And between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Let's pray together. Father God, we bow in your presence. We thank you for every portion of your word that you have inspired, that you have given us. And we pray today that you would speak to us through your word, the word that you want us to hear collectively and individually this day. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, Nehemiah 3 isn't a genealogy. It is a building report, but there are just about as many names in that genealogy as there are in a building report. And I hope you were praying for me as I was trying to read those. And yet, in the midst of those names, there are some really important principles for us to see today about sacrifice. Again, about how greater things always require greater sacrifice. And in Nehemiah 3, as well as in some other passages in Nehemiah that we'll look at in a minute, there are four principles I want us to see today about making sacrifices for greater things. And here's the first principle. God's people must be willing to sacrifice together. God's people must be willing to sacrifice together. And that's what you see happening here in Nehemiah chapter 3. This isn't a story of Nehemiah alone rebuilding the wall. He would have never been able to accomplish this task on his own. This was a task that took all of the people working together. In Nehemiah 3, the work is described section by section all around the walls of the city. Altogether, Nehemiah mentions 45 sections of this wall that was either built uh, from the ground up or repaired. Uh, And he mentions 10 different gates along the way that were located along the city's wall. This uh, diagram gives you an idea of uh, where those 10 gates were located. 
And what Nehemiah does, if you look in verse 1, he starts at the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was located at the northern uh, wall of the city, just north of the temple complex. And Nehemiah begins there at the Sheep Gate, and and he moves throughout the chapter counterclockwise around the city, describing section after section. So he begins at the Sheep Gate. And he describes how the northern wall of the city was enclosed. Then he begins to make his way down along the western wall of the city, all the way down along the southern end of the city, that part of the city that's known as the city of David. And then he comes back around up the eastern wall of the city, up all the way and back around to the Sheep Gate. And if you look in verse 32, he ends at the Sheep Gate in the same place where he started. If you ever go to a a conference on Christian leadership, inevitably someone will preach a sermon or give a talk about Nehemiah uh, because he is an excellent example of godly leadership. Uh, Nehemiah's leadership is not our focus here uh, this morning, but it is worth at least mentioning uh, his organizational plan, which is, is pretty impressive. I mean, for one thing, it's just pretty impressive to get that many different individuals, different families, different groups of people, and assign them to different parts of the wall to see this job completed. And there were a few ingenious parts of his plan as well. If you look in this chapter, there are examples uh, where he assigns uh, sections of the wall to people whose family lived in houses that were right by that section. Uh, now, there's a couple of reasons why that's a good idea. One, people are usually going to do a pretty good job on a part of the wall that protects their own house. But also, you get families working together on that project, and that's what we see here. And then also, of course, just as an added bonus, there's a very short commute. Uh, all they had to do was walk out their back door, and they could get to work each and every morning. And so that was a part of his plan. And Nehemiah also, though, put commuters to work. You see that all the people who worked on this project did not live in Jerusalem itself. There were some who came from outside of Jerusalem, from cities like Jericho and Tekoa and Gibeon. And he put them to work. And he assigned them sections of the wall that were not near uh, a lot of people's homes. But one of the things I love about this chapter is all the different kinds of people who worked on the wall. People of different generations worked on the wall. Parents and their sons. And parents and their daughters. Did did you see that in verse 12? He said, next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. I, I love that. Why let the boys have all the fun? Right? He got his daughters in on uh, this project as well. People from different occupations and different trades who worked on this project. He mentions in verse 1 the high priest himself and the priest who worked there at the sheep gate. They set an example for the people. He mentions in verse 8 goldsmiths and perfumers. Now this job was about as far from making perfume as about anything you can imagine, right? Hauling off rubble and building a wall by hand, and yet the perfumers got in on the act. He also mentions government officials. He mentions merchants. Everybody worked. Most of them were not brick masons by trade, but that didn't matter. It didn't matter what their day job was because they had a God job. 
And God had assigned them a task. And they all stopped what they were doing. They stopped what their everyday work was for a season of time. And they, they did what God called them to do. It ended up being almost two months that they left their day jobs to do this God job that he had given to them. And, and then what stands out probably more than anything is how all these different people, different generations, different occupations, how they all worked on this project side by side together. In, in verse 2, you'll see this expression that shows up over and over again. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. That, that expression, next to them, shows up 28 times in these 32 verses. 28 times. And the Hebrew word for next to them uh, literally is translated as by his hand. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We talk about doing work shoulder to shoulder or, or doing work side by side, but they did work hand by hand. One person's hands working on part of the wall and the next man's hands working on this section of the wall next to his. You know, sometimes the Lord does call us to, to a task. He calls us to do something on our own. We even sing that old song, Though none go with me, I still will follow. And there are times where we are called to serve God in a particular task alone. There have been many believers throughout the generations who have been martyred all alone. So there are times where the Lord gives us a task that is a task for us alone, for us ourselves. But there are also times when the Lord gives us a work that is not our work alone. But it is a part of something bigger. There are times when God gives us a work that he hasn't just given to me. It's too big a work for me alone or for you alone. There are times when the Lord gives us something that he's calling all of us to do. The, the wall was, was like that. No man could have done it alone, not even two or three. It took all of God's people working together side by side, hand by hand until it was done. And there's great strength and great encouragement in that. They weren't alone. Church, in a similar way, the task that God has called us to with greater things is too big for one person alone. It's going to take all of us working together, working side by side, working hand by hand to, to do this. It's going to take all of us if, if we're going to rise up and build and, and expand this facility. It's going to take all of us if the Lord is going to use us to, to reach this 200,000 people who live within 10 miles of this church who don't don't know Jesus. It's going to take all of us to raise up church planting teams and to send them out. It's going to take all of us. But if the people of God in this place work together, each one working on the wall in front of them, each one doing the part that God has called us to do, then by God's grace and by God's strength, the work can be done. But if greater things will be done, it will be all of God's people willing to make sacrifices together. But there's another principle here in Nehemiah 3 that we do need to see and understand, and that is this. Not everyone will sacrifice to the same degree. 
In fact, tucked away in this chapter that describes the work of pretty much everyone in the community working together side by side, there is one notable exception. Look in verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. These are the only people that Nehemiah mentions who did not join the effort. Now, who were the Tekoites? Well, Tekoa was a little city south of Bethlehem. It's actually the city where the prophet Amos came from. But the prophet Amos would not have been pleased with these nobles, with these leaders. Because even while the rest of the people in the city went up to Jerusalem and and got their hands dirty in this work of rebuilding the wall, these nobles stayed home. And Nehemiah said they weren't willing to put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. We're not told why, but the, the language, the wording that Nehemiah uses here implies Uh, that it was pride rather than laziness that was their problem. They were just stubborn. They were stiff-necked is what the word implies. They weren't going to uh, take direction from Nehemiah. Maybe they resented his leadership. Maybe they thought that this work was beneath them. Again, maybe they just didn't want to get their hands dirty. But for whatever reason, they were not willing to do anything at all. And so the work went on without them. When God calls his people to a great work, not everyone will sacrifice to the same degree. That's, that's just a reality. Some will be willing, but for whatever reason, there will be some who won't be willing to sacrifice at all. But that doesn't stop what God wants to do. Because God will move in the hearts of some to go above and beyond what is expected. In fact, while the nobles of Tekoa were were, were disappointing, the people from the city of Tekoa were actually standout workers. In verse 5, it talks about a section of the wall that they finished. But look down at verse 27. And after them, the Tekoites repaired another section. Next to the great projecting tower, as far as the wall of Ophel. So when they got done with their first section of the wall, the people of Tekoa were so enthusiastic that they went on ahead and knocked out another section of the wall, and they weren't the only ones in this chapter to do so. And then there's an individual, one guy that Nehemiah singles out for special commendation. Look at verse 20. He writes, After him, Baruch, the son of Zabbi, carefully repaired the other section. From the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Now the the word carefully there in my translation is a word that means zealously. That he zealously repaired that section of the wall. He's the only person that Nehemiah says this about. In other words, Baruch got after it. He zealously made his repairs. And we don't know what that means. Maybe it means he didn't take any breaks. Maybe it means that there were nights where Baruch worked on the wall all night long. We don't know, but whatever it was, it was enough to catch the attention of Nehemiah. He noticed it, and he singles him out for commendation. And so again, while there are some who won't be willing to make any sacrifice at all, there are others whose heart God touches, who sacrifice a great deal. And church, it will be the same when it comes to greater things. There will be some who in these days, for whatever reason, are not touched to 
respond. And I, I can't help that. All we can do is, is lay before you the vision that God has given to us. A vision that we have prayed about for several years that we believe the Lord has given to us. And all we can do as your pastors is to lay that vision before you, before the people of God. And believe that if God is in it, that he will carry it to completion. And I believe that along the way there will be stories that arise from our church family of people like Baruch who go above and beyond who are willing to sacrifice in great ways because God touches your heart to do so. I want to be clear about this point. The amount of a person's gift does not equal the amount of that person's sacrifice. You know, just last night I was reading in Mark chapter 12 with my boys and we read the story of the widow's might. Maybe you remember that story. Jesus was sitting in the temple complex and he was watching people bring in their offerings. And it says in the scripture that he watched several people bring in huge bags of of gold. And and you can hear the sound as they drop them down there at the collection box. Maybe they were too big to even go inside. They had to set it beside the collection boxes. And Jesus is watching all of this. But then according to Mark 12, he watches a a woman, a, a widow, who comes in and walks across the courtyard of the temple to the collection box, and she takes two little coins. We call them widow's mites in her honor. She takes these two little coins that added up to only a few pennies, and she takes them and she drops them into the collection box. You probably couldn't even hear them as they hit the bottom. But Jesus calls all of his disciples over to himself and gathers them all around and says, Guys, did you see that? Did you see what just happened? Probably said, What? What happened? And Jesus said, that woman right there has given more than everybody else. And I'm sure to the disciples that would have made no sense at all. But according to heaven's economy, the statement was, of course, absolutely correct. Because Jesus said they gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. She gave the last two coins that she had. And as we walk through this process together, only the Lord knows what sacrifices he's going to lead each of us and our families to make in order for greater things to move forward. But as we give, it will be gifts like the widows. It will be sacrificial gifts, gifts that require us to step out in faith. Whatever that means for us and whatever that means for our family, that will bring the Lord the most pleasure. Because in the end, what matters most to the Lord when it comes to our sacrifices is this third principle. Our sacrifices must come from the right heart. And in fact, just to put it bluntly, the truth is God doesn't care what we give if it doesn't come from the right heart. The Lord sees our hearts in everything that we do. And he wants us to give cheerfully. He wants us to give with the right motivations. He wants us to give not in order to be seen, not in order to impress others. He wants us to give because he has led us to do so, because our love for him and our love for others compels us to do so. And one of the places that you see this principle is over in Nehemiah chapter 5, if you'll turn there with me. 
We've looked at how all the rest of the people of God worked in Nehemiah 3. But in Nehemiah 5, we get a glimpse of Nehemiah's own example, how he personally sacrificed. Look at verse 14 with me, and we'll read to verse 19. Nehemiah 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall. And we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice Sheep also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now, verse 14 is the first time that we find out that Nehemiah occupied the position of the governor over the land of Judah, which included the city of Jerusalem. He was governor there for 12 years the first time, and then he actually served a second stint as governor, and you can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 13. But the focus of these verses in Nehemiah 5 is how during his time as the governor of God's people that he did not take advantage of them. That he did not tax the people. He speaks about the governor's provisions in verse 14. Well, those provisions would have come normally from taxing the people. And in verse 15, you read about how the previous governors over the region taxed the tar out of these people. Right? How they took their bread. They took their wine. uh, They took an amount of silver that that amounts to a half a pound of silver from each of them. Right? They they taxed the people in order to, uh, to compensate themselves. And what Nehemiah says is, I never did that. The people of Jerusalem at this time were very poor, and the earlier verses of chapter 5 give us a, a window into that. And part of the reason that they were poor is that some of the wealthy people in the city were exploiting the poor people in the city and taking their land from them and charging them a heavy interest rate on their loans until Nehemiah comes in and puts a stop to that. In verse 16, he says, I didn't buy any of their land. And he could have bought their land. Anytime they couldn't have paid their debt, he could have snatched up and bought their land. By the end, he might have owned almost all of the land. But Nehemiah wasn't there to get rich. Nehemiah was there to serve. And so not only did he not tax the people, not only did he not take money from the people, but he says in verses 17 and 18, he gave money away to the people. That every day he fed out of his own pocket 150 people at his own table and he fed them well. Nehemiah's life was not marked by greed, it was marked by generosity. Of course, as followers of Christ, the Lord wants our lives to be marked by generosity as well because we've been saved by a generous God who gave his one and only son for us. And don't miss what motivated Nehemiah to live and give the way that he did. At the end of verse 15, after he talks about how the previous governors put a heavy burden on the people, he says this, But I did not do so because of the fear of God. He has a reverence 
for God, because of his heart for God, he was not willing to act the way that the governors who came before him acted. And then if you look in verse 18, you see his other motivation at the end of verse 18. I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. In other words, he loved the people and he didn't want to put any more burdens on the people than what they already had. So in essence, the two reasons that Nehemiah does what he does are what Jesus calls the two greatest commandments. To love God and to love people. Biblical sacrifice is motivated by, first of all, a love for God. And we sacrifice because we love God. And we love God because he first loved us. And he sacrificed for us. And then secondly, biblical sacrifice is motivated by love for others. We sacrifice for others because we love them and we want to serve them and we want to help them no matter what personal cost that means for us. And church, this has to be what motivates every sacrifice that we make in greater things. First of all, the love of God. That we sacrifice and we give because we love God and we want to see his name and his glory lifted up in Melbourne and lifted up in the cities of the United States so we give so that his name and his glory can be magnified. We are motivated by the love of God. But also we are motivated by love for people because we love the 200,000 people living right around our church who don't know Jesus, who are right now on a path to a Christless eternity. We love them enough to do something about it. Yes, it would be easier to do nothing. It would be easier to not sacrifice, to not stretch ourselves, to not expand this facility to make any room for anybody else. It would be easier to not send people away, to not plant churches. It would be easier to do all of those things. But love for God and love for others compels us to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to them. And I pray that all of our sacrifices and greater things would come from that heart. From a love for God and a love for people that longs to see them saved. There's one final principle we need to look at before we're through. God does greater things through a people willing to sacrifice. We've looked at the sacrifices Nehemiah and the people made in order to rebuild the wall. And if you flip over one chapter to Nehemiah 6, you can see what happened at the end of this project. Nehemiah 6 verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Did you notice after the wall was completed and the nations around Jerusalem saw the work, did you notice what it says they said? They didn't say, and the wall was finished, and we were so amazed. We perceived that this happened because of the amazing sacrifices and the amazing generosity of this group of people. Is that what it says? No, it says, they perceived that this work was done by our God. And this is my prayer for greater things. We know that this work is too big for any one of us. This work is too big, actually, for all of us. Because it's a God-sized task that only he can do. 
And so at the end of greater things, my prayer is that as the community around us sees what God has done in our church, that they would not say, look at what this people has done, look at what First Baptist Melbourne has done, but they would look and they would perceive that this work has been done by our great God. Before we conclude this message and we go together to the Lord's table, I want to share with you about one of the tools that we have given to every family to help you during this time, during the next couple of weeks, to seek God as a family and to ask God what part he wants your family to play in greater things. That, that tool is a family devotion, and it should have been in, in the packet that hopefully you received a few weeks ago. If you haven't gotten one of these family devotions, they're available uh, on the slat uh, walls there uh, at our main entrances to our building and we'd like for every family to have one of these it's a 14-day devotional that's again designed for families to go through together it won't take uh, long Uh, it's just a short scripture and an illustration and a prayer should take no more than five or ten minutes each day uh, to work through uh, this and in a moment i'm going to ask that the heads of each household in our church would make a commitment today to walk through this devotion together. You know, on the 12th day of this uh, devotion, there's intended to be a a family decision night that happens. Not this Thursday night, but the next Thursday night, just a few days before our commitment Sunday on October 14th. And the idea is that that night, as a family, that you would pray together about what God would have you to give. That initial offering that he lays on your heart, as well as whatever that three-year commitment is that he lays on your heart over and above your tithe, and to say, God, what would you have me give? What would you have our family do as a part of, of greater things? And, and in this, this commitment today, the, the commitment is not really even a commitment to give. The commitment that I'm asking you to make today is, is not definitely not a commitment to give any certain amount. The only commitment that I'm asking you to make today is a commitment to say, I will stand and before God, I will say that I'm going to walk through this devotion with my family over the next couple of weeks with my church family, and I'm just going to ask God the question what he wants me to do. That's the only commitment that you're making today, to say we're going to come as a family before God and we're going to ask him, what he wants us to do. And I, I want to ask in just a moment that the head of every household would stand. I want to have a prayer time together for us before we go to the Lord's table. You say, well, who is the head of the household? Well, if you're a single person, then you're the head of the household. If you're a college student or a young adult that's, that's uh, living here on your own, away from your family, then guess what? You may not have realized it yet. You're the head of your household right now. And if you're a married couple, you can decide who the head of household is. I'm not getting into that. No, I'm just kidding. I think Paul had a word or two to say about, about that. But whoever the head of that household is that's here today, to stand together and to say before God, I, I want to just seek your face, God, during these days. I just want to ask you what you would have me do, and I just want to be obedient to that. If you're willing to make that commitment as the head of the household, would you stand with me at this time? And I just want to have a prayer for all of us. Just remain standing. And church family, I'm standing with you. I'm standing with you because I'm going to be going through this devotion with my family over the next two weeks, with my children, with my wife. And we're going to be asking God the same question. God, what do you want us to sacrifice? What do you want us to give? 
in order to be obedient to you, to be a part of this that you've called us to do. Let's just ask God to be with us. Let's ask God to direct us. Father, we thank you for what you are doing, for what you have done in our church. We thank you for these exciting days in the life of our church when we get to be a part of something that, Father, by your grace, will last long after us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us in these nights over the next two weeks as we come together with our families, as we read and pray and seek your face, that, God, you would just speak to us about how we can sacrifice, about how we can be a part of what you are doing to see lives transformed by the gospel that has transformed our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would receive all of the glory and all of the honor in each of our families in these days. In Jesus' name, amen.